0: Hello, listeners of the Global Health Pursuit podcast. This week, I'm giving myself a little break so that I can keep showing up as the best version of myself and keep bringing you high quality content and inspiring guests who are changing the world. As some of you know, I'm getting married in May. And balancing the podcast and wedding planning is quite the challenge. So This is a very well-deserved break. This week, I'm bringing back an episode I released back in April of 2023, featuring Elvis Ndasi, a visionary with a mission to help mothers and young children in underserved communities. Hope you enjoy, and I'll be back with a brand new episode next Tuesday. As of October, 2018, the United Nations Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs estimated that there were 437,000 internally displaced people in Cameroon, 60% of which were women. An internally displaced person is someone who is forced to leave their home, but still remains within the borders of their home country. Kind of like a refugee, but not really. During today's interview with Elvis Ndasi, he explains that these internally displaced persons are oftentimes mothers and babies who lack easy access to affordable health care. And this is why Elvis is so passionate about what he does. He's the founder and president of Unite for Health, a small health care provider in underserved communities with a focus on prenatal care, delivering babies, and vaccinating children. As a small boy growing up in a rural village of Cameroon, Elvis spoke about significant events in his life that culminated into his passion for serving mothers all around the world. It all started by learning from Rosaline Le Ndasi, Elvis' mother and first source of inspiration. My name is Hetal Lamin, and this is the Global Health Pursuit. Hi, Elvis. How are you?
1: I'm fine, Hetel. Good to see you.
0: It's so awesome to have you on the podcast. So welcome to the Global Health Pursuit Podcast.
1: It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited.
0: (laughs) Awesome. I know that we have so much to go over. You have such a remarkable origin story. I want to start out this podcast by asking you to paint a picture of where you're from, because I know that you've come a long way.
1: Really a long way. (laughs) I'll try to be brief because sometimes I tell take a lot of time to tell my story. I was born and raised in uh, Cameroon, specifically in a village called Misaje. It's a last mile community almost at the border tail with Nigeria. And so I was raised by a single mother. And growing up in Misaje, I had the opportunity to really face real time what poverty looks like in a remote community like Misaje. I went to primary school with kids that came to school without shoes. And I came back from school every day to follow my grandma, go work in the farm. So I never did assignment for the first of uh, four years of my primary school life. So all I knew was come back from school, go work in the farm, and come back be with grandma at home. And uh, till the time I got to now stay with my mother, who had just left nursing school and was posted to one of the nearby remote village, and I had the opportunity to live with her. That was the time I started at least doing assignment with bush lamb. At least we had two lambs, two kerosene lambs, which I I could use one and uh, study why she used the other one. Unlike when I was with grandma, where we had just one kerosene lamb, where the whole family has to gather in the evening to sit for dinner using the lambs, so no privilege to go study. So I experienced firsthand what growing up like a kid in a very remote part of the world that is not deprived from electricity, water, and just the basic amenities that makes life really worth living. So I that that's the one of the you know beautiful part of where I come from because that alone has inspired me in, in, in the things I do and in the journey and to where we come today, just like you said. So I went to school in uh, Misaje went to secondary school in another nearby uh, community, so went to university in the boya still in the northwest region of Cameroon and then I had my master's degree still in the same university in nursing and then before my master's in public health. that's my academic journey but professionally I'm a nurse and a public health expert.
0: This is so amazing when you said that you would go to school with kids who didn't wear shoes, I mean, that's, it's almost like you have this culture shock, right? Coming here and being like, oh my gosh, is this what privilege looks like? Well, that was
1: not for the whole country. That was just for a remote part of uh, Cameroon at that time. And of course, this was around 1988, 1989. So a lot has changed. The last time I visited Mr. J in 2013, don't think you can ever find any child going to school without shoes anymore. A lot has changed in that community. But at that time, that was the reality. And when I moved to secondary school in a nearby community, I could not see any child going to school without you. So there's a difference when you're in a country where when you move from a remote community, last mile community, to a semi-urban community, to an urban community, you kind of have a complete different perspective of what life is. And that's what a lot of development partners need to know that when you go to a country and you end in the capital city, don't write a good, don't write your report yet about the country. When you even go to the suburban community, don't end your report there. You need to go to those last mile communities to appreciate and have a complete picture of what lives look like.
0: I completely agree because that reminds me of my home country. So my parents are from India and it's interesting because there's like almost a paradox of. How people live, and there would be like a wall where it would separate the big buildings and like the more wealthy people, and then poverty on the other side. It's just really insane to look uh, to to even experience. and what you said about don't just go to a big city and write your report, you need to go and study every area because you just don't know what the full picture is. That's true. Yeah. I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your mom because I know that she's inspired you and motivated you to almost be the person that you are today. Can you tell us a little bit about how how she's motivated you? Yeah,
1: my mom is my inspiration now for whatever I do in life today and the journey I've covered so far. Uh, she's I call her a Koha Superwoman. She's a single mother that 12 day and night to raise me up. Despite her very little income, she was a nurse assistant and not even a registered nurse in Cameroon. A nurse assistant is the last on the hierarchy of nursing right at the bottom. So it's a nurse assistant, but posted in this remote community called Dumbu, where I was, uh, I think at that time when she took me from grandma, I was already, I think at the age of six years old. And I didn't know the difference between a registered nurse, no a nurse, no a doctor, but all in that community, they called her doctor. So I knew my mom was a doctor because even at night when we sleep, people will come knock our door to wake her up to present to children that had high fever or just some relative that is sick and she had to administer some treatment. So in our home, we had a thermometer. I saw her keep some forceps and I saw her boil hot water at a 100 degrees to sterilize her forceps. Because there was no sterilizer, that was the local way of sterilizing stuff. And I would see her clean wounds for patients who come for their wound dressing at home. I would see her administer some injection. Why? Because the health center where she was working was really far off from the center of the community. So at night, people can't trek that long distance to go to the health center. So they prefer to come knock the door of the nurse nearby. And I saw her perform this role and being called a doctor. And that was my inspiration. So I knew I would want to become a doctor like my mom until when I went to secondary school and started understanding the difference. And I realized she was not a doctor. But how amazing the work she did to me, even some doctors today cannot do the things my mom did. I helped babies to for her to circumcise when I was still like eight years wow. old. And she would do the circumcision while I watch. So I, I think I, as a little kid at times, I would even want to pretend, tie things on my nose that I want to be a surgeon. I even thought she was a surgeon, but she was just a nurse assistant. So I got this inspiration of really wanting to be like her. And when I left high school with very good grades, I thought I was going to go to medical school, but uh, there was just one medical school in my country and the competition was really stiff. You have uh, thousands of students applying and I was not privileged to be selected. And so I that did not discourage me. I said, okay, if I cannot be a doctor, then I have to still be in healthcare. And that's how I went to the University of Boya to study nursing. And I graduated with a bachelor's degree in nursing, and that was exactly the dream I wanted, to be able to provide the same kind of care my mom was providing to those neighbors and and children that came home sick and people that came home for their wound dressing. But then it happened that immediately after I left university, the government recruited me and posted me to a community that was even more enclaved and last mile than the one I grew up in. Wow. So the question was, why? And I, my classmates were posted in cities and semi-urban communities. And where I was posted to was not just a last mile community, but it was a war-torn community. At that time, Cameroon was disputing that territory with Nigeria. Mm-hmm. It's called Bakasi. It's a highly oil-rich territory, but it's like an island that was being disputed, cut off from the community. I enter flying boats and through creeks and river creeks to go to my job, my workstation. And walking there, I saw firsthand the suffering that people in last mile community faced, even worse than the one I experienced as a kid. People will trek long distances just to come to the health center where I work to consult. And this really inspired me to continue to provide care to this community up to the point where I had the aha moment where a lady had trekked for almost three hours with her baby on her back just to come consult. And after walking this long distance, she arrived at the health center. I stepped out of the health center to receive her and to welcome her to the health center, helping her to untie the baby from her back. Then I realized the baby is dead. And that was really a horror for me and traumatic. But I pretended some kind of intuition, as if I was trying to resuscitate the baby. Took the baby to the ward, but I knew the baby had died. Maybe that was just a kind of intuition that came to me to allow this woman get some breath and rest before get the bad news. But when I told her, "Hey, the baby is normal," and uh, it was really a painful experience for her and myself. And I asked myself, this woman, this woman might have lost this baby just for malaria. Malaria is a very easy diagnosed and easy to treat infection. I think with $5, you can treat malaria. So why should a child die of malaria? So that was a big question. And I realized if this woman had had just a thermometer at home, she might have known when to start trekking or when to start the journey to come to the health center, not maybe when the fever is already at the time when maybe the child had conversed every time and she didn't know. So I personally I told myself I have to do something and that was when I really knew that I've seen my calling to care for women and children in last mile communities that do not have access to healthcare. So I I resigned from my job at the age of 24. I just worked just for a year and a half, and I decided to create Unite for Health Foundation. I didn't know what it was going to be like. Rented a, a room in a single in a community in Yaoundé with some box of medication and a stethoscope on my neck. Started doing what mom was doing. Yeah. But this time around with a little bit more knowledge than mom had. And then people came in Cameroon, nurses have the opportunity to consult patients and even administer some essential medication. I did that, but before I could see the need and demand became more overwhelming. We had to get more space, get some beds. And then before I realized a whole microclinic had been formed, that's when I realized, okay, there is an approach we can solve this problem by providing access to healthcare in underserved communities, using microclinics, just having a facility that people can get to and get the first-hand treatment before seeking for advanced care. And I think that's exactly what mom did. She simply gave fever meds in the night when they knocked at her door to prevent those kids from going to convulsions. She she simply cleaned those wounds to prevent the wounds from getting infected. And she simply referred some people with severe condition to take the trip to the nearby hospital to consult. And I felt like I'm doing what she's doing, but at a larger scale now.
0: Hey there, I hope you're enjoying this episode. And if you are, would you do me a tiny favor? Show me some love by doing one or more of these three things. A, click the support this podcast link in the description to donate a few dollars toward the production of this podcast. My dream is to do this full-time and your support would mean the world. B, you can write me a review on Apple Podcasts and or rate me on Spotify to give me a boost in the algorithm. Or C, share this episode with someone who would love it just as much as you do. I truly and deeply appreciate you. Let's get back to the episode. I want you to give... Perspective to people who are listening, in terms of the real healthcare situation in these last mile villages, like how many doctors were there, how many nurses were there, how many—I don't know, like midwives. You know, like what was the situation like? Because you were saying people would trek re for five days to get to a clinic.
1: Well, let me paint a perspective I mean, just a kind of. Visual image of what the health center looked like. First of all, this was a district. This, this was kind of like a subdivisional health center that covers a population of about maybe fifteen to twenty thousand people. But you have other little villages that are far off that depend on that health center, so they have to take like three to four hours or five hours walking because then there are no taxis. <laughs> right. No bikes. So it's an island. Everything you have to walk or you take a flying boat uh, through, you walk through, you take a boat through the creeks or the rivers to get to another community. But those within this community served by this health center will have to walk long distances to come to this health center, which comprised basically I was a senior nurse at that time with a bachelor's degree in nursing. And we had a, a, a medical doctor who had been dispatched there who rarely came there because of the enclave nature of the place. Most of them never show up. And then, mm-hmm we had uh two other state registered nurses and uh, one one lab technician and that was all about it for the health for the entire health center so we did most of the job we conduct deliveries as a registered nurse uh, we we had to conduct deliveries and uh, we did so many things that even would only be done by doctors but when you are faced in a situation where there is no doctor you have to save a life you just have to go and save that life and so it was a small health center but not really equipped, (laughs) no electricity. We use bush lamb in the health center a lot of the time when we had a generator, but sometimes there'll be no fuel to put in the generator. So we will use bush lamb in the health centers. It seems like movie when you say it to someone in America, right? Because then you imagine all the luxury we have, being able to just uh, get a ride to the hospital and uh, get the best of.
0: Call nine one one.
1: I call 911, they pick you up from your door. We will have people in Bakasi at that time where they will be sick at night and they cannot get their flying boat to fly across the creek to come to the health center because it is low tide and the water has left the shore. So you can take off until water comes back to the shore for you to put your boat and take off. So even, even <laughs> natural conditions like that can restrict you from even evacuation.
0: <laughs> oh my gosh.
1: So, but that was a, that was a kind of a unique enclaved area. That's not how the whole country is. That's not how even uh, 80% of the country is, but that is the kind of reality you'll find when you visit last mile communities.
0: Can you just explain what is a flying boat?
1: It's just kind of a boat that has an engine and then we, that's what we call it. Like you just enter there and they steam the engine and then you're able to ride. But unlike the local one where the, you have to you paddle normally. So there, the local language. They'll call it a flying boat because they believe that the engine is there. So it's great at a faster speed. And the <laughs> local people, I like to use that word flying boat. It never escaped my vocabulary because that was what we called
0: So it would be like a motorboat.
1: It's just a boat, you, gotta, you know, with engine. a motor. Yes, for model.
0: <laughs> I was like, wow, that's interesting.
1: <laughs> you saw a boat flying in the sky.
0: So... <laughs> I got you. <laughs> I know you did get me. I was like, wow. Well, I mean, you had technology as so a flying boat there. What happened? <laughs> so you had the idea for a microclinic and you explained, okay, it was just kind of a couple of nurses, you had your stethoscope, you had some tests and things like that. What are you working on now? When you say micro clinic, what are you focused on serving?
1: Yeah, so this is what we're talking about 16 years from when I started Unite for Health Foundation. What the objective on Unite for Health Foundation. Had an objective to provide access to healthcare in underserved communities, right? So, if you ask me, I would say when I started, the mission has not changed. Our mission is to combat infant and maternal mortality and fight infectious and non-infectious disease by providing affordable healthcare and education to underserved communities. And we reach out to the communities using microclinics and other community outreach programs. But then, if to paint a picture of a microclinic. We think that if this woman had a, an opportunity to just visit a facility where she would receive the first-line care of just knowing the temperature of her baby, getting some fever meds to reduce the temperature mm-hmm. before actually going to a bigger facility where she would receive real specialized care, she would not have lost her baby. So a microclinic is a small concentrated unit of a clinic that has the, a consultation, a laboratory, a first-line medication pharmacy where you can get all the first-line medications. Then you have a specialized unit where women can give birth in the safe hands without, you know, um, you know, in the hands of healthcare providers. So we have a, a, a labor room and the delivery unit. Then we have another section where you can actually admit those who have high fever and treat them for malaria. Maybe you have to give them infusion and observe them. So we have some hospitalization beds where you can actually observe them. So it's a kind of really small structure of a clinic that provides this first hand healthcare service in for people in those communities that are really cut off from access to healthcare. And by doing so, not only do you save their lives in those really critical moments by doing just those basic things, first aid and and, and consultation, but also it helps you to it helps us to be able to do good referrals identifying those whose conditions are more serious and advising them to maybe travel out of the community to seek care faster before the situation gets worse. So a United for Health microclinics actually have saved a lot of people, over more than 45,000 people since we started United for Health in our microclinics. And each microclinic now has a medical doctor, has a nurses, nurse assistant, and a lab technician to run the lab. And uh, laboratory practice now is really getting modern with so many rapid diagnostic tests. So just with some rapid diagnostic tests, we can run so many infectious disease tests and uh, be able to have at least a diagnosis before doing prescriptions to our patients. And we have a delivery unit. We've actually had so many women give birth in our clinic. Good news is for over 16 years that we started for Health. We've never recorded any maternal or child death in our clinic. And we've never recorded any death at all in our clinic so
0: Knock
1: if, on wood. it's a good feeling for us we might not have done anything just so special not to have had such an unfortunate situation people don't die in the hospital because hospital were not good Sometimes, when it's their time, they have. we just can't help it, but we might just have been fortunate that it has the incident has not occurred in our microclinics.
0: I'm looking at your website right now and I see the prototype of your microclinic, and it really looks like so well thought out. You have a you have an ultrasound room, you have a lab, you have a vaccination room, all of that wow, yes. Even a courtyard.
1: <laughs> yeah, that is the prototype. When I became an Obama scholar at Columbia University, I had the opportunity to work with some students at the School of Architecture. And we had to ask ourselves this question, what is the modern microclinic that I want to see Unite for Health Foundation have? What is it that I want to see that is different from those earlier talks that I had about a microclinic? And we thought about if you're providing healthcare to maternal, to pregnant women, you have to give them healthcare that meets WHO standards. So they have to do ultrasound. So you need an ultrasound room. Mm-hmm. If you are providing delivery services, you have to think of those babies. They have to come for their vaccination. So you have to have an immunization room. And so we have to think through some of those things that early on we never thought about. And also we want a micro clinic to be self-sustaining. So we, we make sure we have water that is, we have a water borehole that provides water to the structure and we have solar panels that will provide electricity to the structure and just a kind of a design that can be a standalone without depending on maybe the electricity grid or maybe the water, uh, pipe water from the city or, or government, uh, amenities. So we, we had to think through all this to come up with this prototype, which we are really excited to start the construction of our first prototype, maybe uh, sometime in 2024.
0: That's awesome. I love that. I know that, so you focus on maternal and health of babies. What was it that drew you to that specific field of medicine?
1: Back to the story I told you about the woman in Bakasi and her child, that was a woman, a mother and a child. That was maternal and child health there. Just as we care about the health of that baby that she lost, she she might not have lost if she had access to care. That's how we care about those pregnant women that lost their life every day, just because they are giving birth at home or because they are giving birth under circumstances that are not the best. So, if you look even statistics uh, in two thousand, as as far as uh, data is concerned, in two thousand and seventeen, the statistics show that Cameroon still had one of the highest. Uh, Cameroon was 18 among the 20 countries with the highest contributors of maternal mortality in the world with about 560 deaths per 100,000 deliveries. So that was really high. So Cameroon is one of those countries that still has a very high maternal mortality rate and also infant mortality. And so these are things that are preventable. Most of these mortality or deaths are preventable. And so we focused on that. If you have a society where women still die when trying to give birth, that is not fair. I find that to be kind of injustice. And uh, when I think about those women who are pregnant and still have to trek or walk long distances just to get their antenatal care, it's still part of the injustice. And I think that what United for Health Foundation is doing is just being uh, providing what is, uh, what, what they deserve. They deserve care. And women and children deserve the same kind of care that every other person in society will have. Just, they, they are always the disenfranchised group that suffer the burden of every aspect of societal calamities. When there is war, women and children are the ones that suffer the most. When there is conflict, women and children are the ones that suffer the most. Right now in Cameroon, there is a conflict in the Anglophone zones of Cameroon. We have internally displaced women and children who have left their home, driven from their home because of conflict. Some of them even give birth in bushes because they have been driven from their home by conflict. So this this is a population I care so much about. Of course, for women, I care so much about my mother. And I'll not want any woman to go through anything uh, sad because I want the best for her. And when I think about every woman out there, I think about my mom and I think they deserve the best.
0: Yeah. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for saying that. You mentioned women who are internally displaced persons. Can you explain what that means?
1: Yeah. When there is a conflict in a country, the global community always pays attention most to refugees. And by the international definition, refugees are those who have also been driven from their homes and they are seeking refuge in another country, mm-hmm. in another country. They are considered refugees in those countries. But when you have a conflict in a country, most people leave from one part of that country to another part of that country. And the burden of the suffering is the same. Because when you leave from a community that is your own, where you've lived and breathed and gone to school and maybe walk your farm and everything, your livelihood depends on that community... And when conflict breaks and you have to run away from that community to another community far off in the same country that is not your own, you are still like a stranger in the new community. But then your definition is different. You are an internally displaced person because you are within your country. You are not considered a refugee. So you don't benefit from all the donations and all the global funding that are meant for refugees. So internally displaced people suffer a really huge burden of crisis because The attention is not focused so much on them because they still consider them to be a responsibility of their country. Mm. But the same country that is at the origin of their conflict. So it's a big issue. We have women who have been displaced from the northwest and southwest region of Cameroon because of the conflict that is going on there. And they are now in the other regions of the country, some of them even begging for shelter, some of them sleeping on the streets because they don't have work to do, where to sleep. And then in 2021, we had a program at Unite for Health Foundation providing free delivery services to pregnant women that were internally displaced. These are women that are pregnant and they've run away from their community. They don't have any income generating activity, but they are pregnant. They have to prepare for their baby. So we... We had to provide free delivery to some about uh, 47 women in 2021 who were internally displaced and were found in the urban community in Yaoundé where we had one of our micro clinics. So we still pay a lot of attention to this internally displaced person because then they they suffer a lot, but the camera really doesn't get to them easily.
0: That is huge. I never even thought about that, that the aid would most often just go to refugees that flee their own country, but then the people who actually within their country who are going to just another community, they don't get the help. That is so interesting. Wow. So I want to talk about research and what you're doing to collect data, because I think it's so important that in order to grow and create new programs and create new innovation to help more and more people, you need to have the data. So, what are you doing to gather this research?
1: Yeah, that's a very interesting question, and I think I do that really professionally because first I totally had a master's degree in, in nursing and, and a master's in public health, and I've really in the past in my career professionally work as a clinical research professional and participated in so many clinical trials, and I understand just how important data is for everything that is problem that you're seeking as, uh, to look for a solution. And so at the level of Unite for Health Foundation, we have the responsibility to to collect this data in a way that can be interpreted and produced information that can inform the scientific community for the work that we do. And so that is why we make sure that we capture this data in a very specific way. And one of the vision I had about Unite for Health is that someday when we have all these microclinics spread around the different parts of the country and Africa, those microclinics could be a very good host for clinical trials for those who want to actually run trials at community level where the disease burden is highest. Then they'll find our structure spread all over. And this will we will be able to provide, you know, an avenue where a lot of data can be generated on both infectious and non-infectious disease. We conduct a lot of community outreach program as well. Last year, we screened about 450 women in one of the communities in the northwest region for breast and cervical cancer. We also screened 1,500 people in 2021 for diabetes, hypertension, and obesity. And we found really interesting results that people walk on the streets and they don't even know they are hypertensive. They don't even know they have high sugar. And sometimes they drop dead and sometimes in a community where there's a lot of superstition, they'll think that maybe it's witchcraft or something. So we have to mm-hmm. go out to the community because when COVID-19 hit in 2020 and our clinics became empty because of all the conspiracy theory that scared people from seeking help care in facilities, in healthcare facilities, we still thought that there was a need and with all the lockdowns that were implemented, we saw that it was people still needed healthcare but could not go out of their their home. So we said, okay, one of the ways we should think about providing access to healthcare as Unite for Health is taking healthcare to the people and not just waiting for them to come to our clinic. And that's how we started our community outreach program, which is really vibrant. And we doing a lot of community outreach programs to screen people for different diseases. This year we held a board meeting and we have plans to screen thousands of people for infectious disease in some of those last mile communities. And this is just one of the ways we are also generating data by doing this work that can actually form a baseline of just uncovering the burden of some of this disease in those communities that maybe no one is thinking
0: about. Community health workers are the future. That's just amazing that you're doing that. And I feel like with community health workers, you're also providing education to these patients.
1: Exactly. When we go out for community outreach program, there is no way you would want people to come test for their blood sugar or for their hypertension without you telling them what those two things mean. So it there is, first of all, the education component that is very important. And when they come do their blood pressure, when it's high, you have to give an explanation to them and tell them about the risk. So that's education taking place. When they have high blood sugar, you have to explain to them the risks and all what they need to do in terms of changing behavior and their diet in order to manage their conditions. That's education firsthand at the level of the community before they even meet a doctor. So community outreach campaigns are really, really important ways of reaching out to a larger part of the community when it comes to certain serious healthcare problems like infectious and especially with the recent rise in non-communicable disease in Africa, We are experiencing high rise in cancers and kidney disease and liver disease. You know, these are all things that are really increasing in prevalence as the days go by. And we always say that if you don't look for something, you will not find it. And so one of the ways we want to be able to really paint a picture of the burden of some of this disease is to actually look for them. Go to the community and screen for, for this infectious disease rather than see it and assume that they don't exist just because maybe people don't have access to care.
0: Well, so Elvis, I want to talk about your book, The Hope in You. Thank you for sending me this. You sent me a beautiful copy with your signature in it as well. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You speak a lot about your inspiration that comes from Obama. I mean, you you actually got into this Obama Scholars Program Which is incredible. What made you apply for that program? And what about Obama inspired you so much?
1: The story of Obama to me is a story of dream come true. It's a story of dream come true, not just for him, but also for me. In 2007, I, first of all, was very politically active in my country. I was a student leader in the university. When I graduated from university at the age of 23 and I At 24, I joined the national politics and I ran for election to be mayor in my community. And that was when Obama was firebrand. Mm. So each time I was very keen, uh, you know, listening to the news and watching him speak and make speeches and... I, I felt like this, this is the kind of person I get inspired by and I I, st- I would watch videos just to hear him speak and just to collate like him and when I went for my campaign in 2007 everybody was saying oh this is our own Obama this is our own Obama <laughs> wow, and I great. felt proud that they were making reference to a great man like Obama and I kept the pursuit of my political career back home. I became the national president of one of the leading political parties in Cameroon. I ran for election to be a member of Congress in 2013. And I I was keen about just how I wanted to be part of the kind of story of change. But one thing happened in 2016, when I was I applied, when President Obama, he was now president, he started the Young African Leaders Initiative, sponsored by the U.S. State Department. That was aimed at just selecting, you know, uprising leaders from Africa and giving them exposure in the United States through a fellowship program called the Mandela Washington Fellowship Program. Mm. And I applied. It was a highly competitive program. And I applied and I was selected. And I came to the United States and I studied at Wagner College in Staten Island. And for the fellowship on that civic leadership, we had the opportunity to learn a lot about civic leadership and a lot of different things. I remember Obama saying something when we asked, I think he made a statement that you cannot only become a leader through being elected. You can be a leader by just being a change maker in your community, by creating impact in your community and, and, and all that. So my views about politics started changing when we asked a question. He, Obama, I remember him saying, do not bother so much about who you want to become, but bother about the work you want to be do and do it well. That got stuck with me. And I went back to Cameroon after that fellowship, continued to pursue my work with Unite for Health Foundation. At that time, we had just two microclinics. We opened the third microclinic. And I continued to focus on the Unite for Health work, creating impact in the community, providing access to healthcare. And in 2018, I got nominated when he had left the office and started the Obama Scholars Program, the very first cohort. It was by nomination. It was not an open application. So someone had to nominate you, and it was Uh. global. It was across the world. It was not like... uh... So I got this email someday that, Elvis, you've been nominated to apply for the Obama Scholars Program. So that was amazing. I didn't even know who nominated me at that point in time. So I had to follow all the process applied, very rigorous process, went through all the stages of the interview. That was August 2018 when I got that very best email of my life that I've been selected as an Obama scholar to study at Columbia University. Now, I knew that that was a dream come true. I knew I was going to meet President Obama face-to-face. I knew I was going to be in the same room with him through that program. And I said, okay, it's true that dream come true because this is someone who has inspired me right from 2007, right from a, a last mile community in Cameroon, in Africa, where you don't even think that you will want to be in the same, even in the same state with him, talk less mm-hmm. of in the same room or in the same country. But then I found myself in this privileged position, and I came to the program really inspired. And the, the program itself was amazing, one of the best programs ever I've ever attended in my life. We selected just twelve of us from around the world wow. to attend the first cohort of the Obama Scholars Program at Columbia University, where well, we really passed through the hands of really amazing people, including Avril Hinz, who is now the Director of National Intelligence, and even uh, Blinken. We had to be with Secretary Blinken in the same room in during one of our trips in Chicago and then uh, met with Obama, met with Michelle. Amazing people, got inspired, and that took me now to another trajectory of the work I do. The Obama Foundation program really inspired us to look at the world, to look at the problem with a, through a global lens and not just through the lens of, you know, the microclinic in Misaje or uh, the micro clinic in Cameroon. But no, thinking now like leaders who are really change makers, who are resilient change makers that are ready to face and solve the pressing challenges that our world is facing, including climate change, health, and, uh, you know, the terrorism and all the things you can think about. So after the program, I've really found different ways of doing things. In the, um, Unite for Health Foundation has really grown tremendously. It's now a registered 501c here in the United States with a really fully functional Board of directors, really amazing board of directors. My board chair, Florence Buchanang, is an amazing lady. And we are shaping the future of Unite for Health in a way that is amazing, not just looking at Cameroon, but looking at Africa and pioneering some of some initiatives that cut across healthcare and energy poverty and really doing amazing work in some of the communities in Cameroon. Of course, I'll share some of those videos with you. You can find them on our website. Also, just creating other initiatives to bring together Cameroonian healthcare professionals from around 35 countries on the platform, where we meet every fortnight to talk about healthcare problems in Cameroon and how the diaspora can contribute. I find myself moderating this panel that has so far a membership of about 1,750 participants. And uh, these are just some ways in which you can be part of a change without being occupying a political office. I resigned from politics in two thousand and nine. And I said, okay, I'm not longer looking at life through the lens of becoming a mayor or a congressman or a president someday. But just the impact that I think we are able to create through Unite for Health Foundation, the number of pregnant women we are able to put smiles on their faces when they deliver and give birth and they are told that they don't have to pay anything because their bills have been covered by Unite for Health. Those are the kinds of things that really keep me being thankful of just a person knowing the Obama and through all the benefits that I've had from just being an Obama scholar and passing through that program, and also even from when I was Mandela Washington Fellow, which was still part of his initiative. That's why I talk a lot about it.
0: The fact that you mention being a leader doesn't necessarily mean that you need to have authority. That's huge, and that all you need to do is create some type of change. And I think that in the book that you wrote, the hope in you it's really all about how to become a change maker in your society, how to actually do something however small it is, and how to become kind of a better human,
1: yeah. Those little acts that sometimes might go unnoticed, but that impact life, that's leadership. And that's why throughout the Obama Foundation, if you look at the focus of their program, it's just about inspiring and connecting the next generation of change makers. And they do that at different levels. They have the Obama African Leadership Program. They have the Obama Fellows. They have Obama Community Leaders. So most of this work is around empowering people and giving them the ability to solve their own problem. And I really agree when he says that you can be a leader and a change maker without occupying any position. Because leadership is behavioral, it's not positional. It's not something that you have to be kept in a position before you actually become a leader. I flashback memory lane when I was in the university in our first holiday that we had in my first year in the university. I benefited from a $100 grant from a foundation called the Fobank Foundation, which they told us, go to your community and solve any problem that you find there. $100. I went to my neighborhood and there was a public tap that everybody used to come line up to carry water from the public tap. And because of people fighting to be the first or to be the second to carry water, there was sometimes splash water and the water was dirty because you know, the head of the tap was really high up there. And then they would keep their bucket right down there. And so water will flash in the bucket and it could be easy to get the water dirty. So I right. came there and I called a technician. I said, we can solve this problem. Why not just construct a surface that is a little bit higher? So when people come, they can keep their bucket on top of the surface to meet the head of the tap up there so that the the distance should not be much from the water entering the bucket and that spills over from the soil to so the bucket will not occur. And we bought some, some sand and, uh, cement and concrete and I paid the money. The $100 was just enough to pay for that and the workmanship and we built that structure and people Came there a few days later when it was already solid. They could keep their buckets there, carry their water on the top. It, it didn't occur to me like that was a very big thing I did.
0: The most simple little act.
1: But when I became, when I left university it's ten years later, and I drove past that community, and I still saw that same surface I constructed. That is when I realized how much of impact that little act of community service. Was to the neighborhood that I once lived in. So sometimes we just underestimate our own power of being change makers. Sometimes we estimate just how much we can contribute to community building. And that's what I try to say in my book, looking at just, first of all, inspiring people to believe in themselves. We all, a lot of people have had a lot of challenges in their life. I've had one. My story is that of resilience. If you read my book, Coming from a very poor background, struggling with a single mom, to be able to beat all those challenges of life, to be where I am today, I think everyone can do something. And we got a lot in this country, in the United States, we just got a lot that we can really change the world. Sometimes when we look at television and the media and all the problems, we think that we have the worst problem. But I would say that everywhere there are problems, but there are change makers that even within the, the best of their crisis, they thrive to make life better for some other people.
0: My last question for you is, what would you tell your younger self today with all of the experience that you have now? What would you tell him?
1: I say that to my six-year-old boy. I say that to Jason all the time. And I tell, I tell him and I tell his younger sister, I tell them, never give up. I tell them never give up. Uh, the other day we, I put a, a cartoon movie and we're watching and they saw a character say, don't give up, don't give up. And they tell me, yeah, daddy, they are saying what you always tell us. I say, yes, that's the secret. Never give up. We get really toast and troubled by society and we get leveled. Society is full of, you know, we come to this world with all our potentials, right? All the opportunity to become the best of who we are. But through our developmental stages from birth to childhood to grown-ups, we get through a lot of societal labels. on our, that, that makes us forget that we have all what it takes in this world to be the best of ourselves. We get labeled right from early childhood either as dull or as intelligent or dull based on grading system in schools. We get labeled as either rude or polite based on societal judgment. We get a lot of those labels, black or white, and we grew up just really losing that fact that we come to this world with all this potentials to be the best of who we are. And society really beats us too much, such that if you don't have that fighting spirit of never giving up, it is easy to, to decline, as we find a lot of kids nowadays on drugs. We hear that there's a lot of fentanyl uh, in America, a lot of kids getting drugs. There is a problem somewhere, When children start losing their self-esteem at a very early stage because of how society beats them around with all the social media now and so much societal expectation on how they should dress or behave or, you know, what they should know and not know. A lot of kids get having depression that is undiagnosed. All this is because of what we are going through and facing in our present day life. And all I tell my six-year-old is believe in yourself. You are the best. You have all it takes. Even if anybody makes you feel low, you always have to feel high and know you're the best and never give up. That's what I will tell the six-year-old you asked me about, because that's just who I was when I was six years old. I never gave up. I never, I never thought I could give up. I went to school, hear kids talk about my daddy, my daddy, when I never had a daddy at that point in time, because I, I, knew, I never knew where my dad was. But... I knew that when they'll find him, I finally got him and we are good friends, but I think that some of those single moms that are raising male kids, you don't know what they go through when those kids come home and they don't have the male figure and just how they walk through that experience to become who they are, it's it's, it's another story. So it's a story of not giving up.
0: Thank you for sharing that. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Elvis. This is such a great conversation really touched my heart. So thank you for your time.
1: Thank you so much. It's really been nice talking to you and uh, thank you for the work you do on your podcast. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to learn more about today's topic and our guest today, head over to www.globalhealthpursuit.com forward slash show notes to get access to resources, links, and ways you can get involved in the pursuit for global health. And if you love this episode, don't forget to write me a review on Apple Podcasts and rate the podcast on Spotify. It helps me get in front of more people just like you and continues to elevate the causes that we're so passionate about. This episode was hosted and written by me, Hathal Baman, and was produced and edited by Anna Curran Howard. I'll see you in the next one.